0: Welcome to Founders First, a show about mental health in entrepreneurship and how to build resilience to stay stronger, happier, and be more successful. You can engage more in the conversation by going to the App Store on your phone and searching Founders First Community. Today on Episode 3, we're chatting with Ryan Uliteri, car salesman turned entrepreneur. He co-founded and is the CEO of Charleston Bloody Mary Mix. After a decade of hard work, he's turned an idea that came up over afternoon drinks into a nationally recognized brand, sold in over 6,000 stores and is the number one craft Bloody Mary Mix in the US. He's done it all with almost no background in business. So as you might imagine, he's had his fair share of stumbles along the way. So, Ryan, you've had this great journey, Um, you had an idea, you found a way to make it happen, and now you've had this great success and this massive operation, honestly, behind you. Um, In Founders First, we focus on the journey and the challenges that entrepreneurs face along the way. Well, every entrepreneur's journey is different, we know that many of these difficulties are really the same across us as founders and entrepreneurs. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how this idea came to you and uh, where you were in your life when you decided that this was something you wanted to do. So you mentioned to me you were working at a car dealership and then one day you just walked out. So what what made you take the leap?
1: So yeah, you know, I went to college at Charleston, um, graduated from there and I was not very smart with credit card debt and, and probably my spending habits. So as soon as I graduated, I had to get a job right away. Uh, so I had a friend that was working at a car dealership about a mile away from downtown Charleston. Uh, so I got a job there working in sales and it was a great job, great money. Um, but, you know, I was ended up being there. It was supposed to be a two year gig and things were going so well that I just every one year turned into another and turned into another. And during that time period, um, you know, we would, we had a lot, Charleston's a fun city, always had some great nights out and our go-to mix in the morning uh, was always the same mix. And so one morning uh, we go to the grocery store on closer to Folly Beach out here in Charleston and our go-to mix is gone. It's off off the shelf, it's sold out. So we buy a few of the other brands, me and some buddies, off the shelf and we, you know, we get back to my house uh, on James Island and we're making up Bloody Marys. And, you know, as as it tends to happen with a group of friends together that are consuming some beverages, the ideas start flowing. Um, You know, we should do this together. We should do this together. And, and one of the ideas that came up, and this was coincidentally right when Firefly Sweet Tea Vodka. Yeah. just gotten really big. And one of the ideas that came up was, Hey, if Firefly can do it, and we don't like these Bloody Mary mixes that we're drinking. Why don't we just come up with our own Bloody Mary mix? Mm-hmm. So that was a Sunday, Monday morning, go back to reality. And, um, you know, it was a few of my friends, we were, we were joking about it, but I'm sitting there at the uh, the sales desk and, you know, not really on the path that I envisioned myself in life. And start making me decide or i decide uh with one friend that hey let's really look into this so we find a place in charleston that can bottle it for us Uh, i get a neighbor across the street to design a label uh, and we're literally brewing this up in my kitchen so from there start selling it to some restaurants we get a production facility driving around charleston yeah in the it's in the back of my car trying to sell restaurants on it and same time i'm still working the dealership job and you know we eventually hit a point with the dealership where i had one foot in one foot out uh, me and the boss man kind of had it out one day and it was my jerry mcguire um moment where i'm like all right i'm out of here i'm taking the goldfish and that's when it, it became a full-time career this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna i'm gonna full-time make this the better bloody mary mix and, and just put everything into it that's
0: how it started, <laughs> that's how it starts <laughs> yeah. yeah so i i 'm going to dig in on the the dream a bit, so like you 're actually starting this thing, um, you know, and like so many of our members have started companies on their own, some of us many times right it 's a kind of a, a common path for entrepreneurs, so The idea of struggling to get off the ground is, I think, familiar to a lot of us, right? Like, you know, having two jobs, having one foot in the startup, having one foot in, you know, the way that you're paying the bills, loading things in your truck, trying to pitch them to people when nobody's ever heard of it before. Um, You told me about some of the the challenges you were faced with, kind of wondering if this was going to work out before you really started to scale it. Um, We'd love to hear about what that that dream was when you first started, what you imagined this was going to be. Um, and maybe some of the times you had doubts or, you know, started to realize how big of a project this was going to be as you're getting started.
1: So I have zero business background. I was a political science major at College of Charleston, and uh, math is probably my my worst suit of any of, any of the, the majors. <laughs> um, you know, in my head, I'm imagining you're, you go into business, you start a product, it's a good product, you're successful right away, and, you know, you sail off into the sunset, and I'm I'm sitting on a porch on the battery in my giant house, uh, enjoying life. And part of it too is I I went into it a little unprepared where the sales were so good at my previous dealership that it was great money. I was 25, 26 years old, making six figures. You, know, you don't realize how long, how very, very short of a time you can make that last when you start a business. Yeah. Um, so start the company and Got some money saved up. I'm like this is enough to start the business, and slowly as business expenses line up, a uh, mortgage payment lines up, and there's really not a lot of income coming in because I'm again selling this out of back of my truck with a a bottle of mix with a logo on it that's hand drawn by a neighbor with no real uh. There's no no real messaging to any of the brand, yeah. and so uh, the reality hit really quickly. And um, we were talking there, and you know, probably the most challenging point during the initial startup was yeah, I had this big mortgage on a house, and there came a point where I could no longer pay my mortgage and keep the business running. Um, so, probably the biggest reality check in the beginning was I was forced to make a decision like, "Hey, do you want to keep this house or do you want to keep the business going?" Mm-hmm. So, a conversation I had had with some friends of mine that were in the the private equity world and the investment world and the uh, in the business world, I was so deep in the hole with the house. They basically just said, let it go. So that was one of the biggest struggles was had a house foreclosed on by the time I was 27.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, But it really, it it was one of those things where I believed enough in the brand and into the business that like, this is what I'm going to do. So this is the decision and let's just keep plowing forward.
0: Yeah. You, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs share with me that the, And I felt this before, too, that it's one thing when it's you yourself as the founder and you're trying to move product and you're struggling and you're trying to juggle all these priorities. But the moment it starts to go a little bit well and you start to build a team around you, now you have this team of people that you have convinced to come work on your crazy idea. And it, it can often feel like there's so much more at risk, right? Like we have to worry about being able to pay those early team members or even give them enough work, right? We Maybe hire people in front of the demand that we hope is coming. What were those early kind of like starting to have some success, but, you know, team building around you and then wondering if, you know, this whole ship was going to continue to sail those, what were those moments like?
1: I think, you know, one of the most challenging parts in the very, very beginning um, was i started, started the business with a, a very good friend of mine. Hmm. And as, once I left the dealership and had gone full time with the business, he still had his previous job. Um, so the challenge there was I'm trying to run, run it how I see fit. Mm-hmm. He is still working his other job. And so it became a, a point where we weren't seeing eye to eye. Um, mm-hmm. So he decided to step out. You know, I, I bought him out for the small amount that the company was generating at the point. And so it started to strain relationships with friends, um, which was a big challenge. And so I went from having someone who really bounced ideas off of to now it's just me, Mm -hmm. Uh, which was a a good thing, too, because the only person relying on me was was me at the time. Um, So I didn't experience that much where it was other people as far as relying on me for an income Mm -hmm. or for business. That challenge wasn't as bad in the beginning as opposed to other startups that maybe go into it a little better capitalized, uh, a little larger operation.
0: Yeah. What was, um, if you remember, what was your kind of annual revenue when you hired your first employee? Was it like 50,000, 100,000? When did you, when were you brave enough to actually bring somebody else into this crazy story? It wasn't a founder with you, right?
1: So I was, I was fortunate that the equity group uh, that we partnered with, when, you know, there was a point where we realized, or I realized that to grow this business, we had to do a full rebrand. Uh, we had to do new graphics package and the mix itself wasn't that good. The first version, <laughs> you know, you've got a group yeah. of guys that made it in our kitchen. Um, and so we knew that everything, or I knew everything had to be changed. Um, yeah. So brought in a PE firm. Thankfully the guy was another college Charleston guy that mm. uh, a few years ahead of me that had done incredibly well. So he was able to back up, my sales with a kind of a front of the house staff, he had, you know, someone to keep track of the books, uh, track all of the orders. So really fortunate that we were able to stay, you know, a three-person operation until about I want to say two, maybe 2014, 2015, wow. uh, before we needed to bring some additional people in. But
0: you know, Which it's about funny, like five, five years in 2000,
1: 2009 started. Four, four years in uh, yeah four or five years years in in, wow it outgrew you know just me the uh and two the 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 challenge was when we knew or i knew we had to grow you know you're you're pushing this product out it's your baby Mm -hmm. nobody wants to tell you your baby's ugly (laughs) and so again this is a mix that we're we made in the kitchen i have limited bartending experience except for what i consume in front of the bartenders (laughs) And it was finally, I ran into a really good friend of mine uh, that was in the bar business for 15 years. And he was literally across the bar um, at a breakfast place in Charleston. And he was the one that finally said to me, man, your mix sucks. And that was really kind of the slap in the face that, like, oh my God, I got to redo If This is going to happen. We've got to redo everything. Yeah. And and they couple that with not a lot of revenue coming in Mm exhausted all of my resources you know next thing you know the sheriff might be knocking on the door to pull me out of my house it was uh that was probably a, a, the darkest time
0: yeah so many of us feel that that we start out with maybe a little bit of delusion around how easy this is going to be and maybe get a little bit of early feedback that we project onto everyone else and assume that this thing is gonna, you know, go like crazy. Um, and then the deeper we get into it, we start to realize, I'm sure with your business, like physical product, you have to produce it somewhere, you have to ship it. It can go bad, I'm assuming, since it's fresh and it's craft and it's like all these problems that you start to think about, like this, these are not things that you thought of when you're that optimistic dreamer sitting there building the first version of the plan while, you know, having a morning cocktail.
1: Yeah. It, it, I remember I still remember one of the the earliest mistakes I ever made. Um, when I was delivering it in my car, the because we're all natural and we don't have like any stabilizers in the mix, Charleston gets ungodly hot. And so if you leave a case of mix in your car for too long, the whole product's bad. Yeah. So you know, I would drive travel around Charleston and let's say I run into a a restaurant and it wants to talk for a while and my car is heating up for two hours. I've now got six cases of mix that are no longer good that I didn't realize that until we had dropped a few more of them off and I'm getting phone calls and what is this? <laughs> so, yeah, that was, that was an eye-opener, the, uh, <laughs> how much heat can burn a product.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's an interesting combination of, uh, yeah, selling a fresh product in the, in the scorching hot South for <laughs> a <laughs> like fresh summer drink. drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, one of the things you and I talked about is like, how many entrepreneurs feel like they're just going through this alone. You mentioned it you know, a minute ago, right, when you had a founder kind of in the beginning and then parted ways and, and you moved forward with the business. So, um, you know, we always feel as entrepreneurs, like we need to project success. So everyone thinks we're moving in the right direction, no matter how much we might actually be struggling. So in the most challenging moments when you were doing everything possible to focus and grow and expand, did you feel like you had to keep challenges to yourself? Like, what was that effect on you personally in these hard times?
1: I it's 100% accurate because you you know, as you're launching a product, the, you want to portray to everyone around you that things are going great, uh, the product's successful, everything is blue skies and, and sailing ahead. And you know, meanwhile, it, you, you've got this oncoming train of all of these responsibilities that are lining up that maybe you can't uh, succeed at. So it, I think the biggest challenge uh, for me was trying to portray the successful image outwardly. Mm-hmm. Knowing that, hey, you know, we're a month to two months away from this thing not happening to it being over, mm-hmm. and I really had no, nothing else lined up after the Bloody Mary Mix. You know, I I had left college immediately, went to a job at a party dealership. Um, so it, internally, I'm I'm stressing out that my skill set isn't developed enough to you know, now I'm going to fold up to this Bloody Mary Mix company. I've, I've now got a failure on my hands. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do now that I'm, you know, I've, my peer group has already moved on. They're at the second level of their you know, medical device sales jobs or their construction mm-hmm. companies they've started. Now I'm back to the square one while also having a failed Bloody Mary
0: <laughs> and a lot of uh, spoiling Bloody Mary mix. Yes, yeah, a lot of, good <laughs> <months> of <life. laughs> that you yeah. don't know what to do with. Yeah, you know, I felt this so similarly. So our stories are similar in that I started my kind of early software companies in my last years of college, and then kind of in the first years following it. Um, and I had that those those same moments, kind of two to five years after college, where. Like you know, I thought this startup was going to take off quickly and things were going pretty well. We had, you know, maybe quarter million dollars of revenue and a small team. Um, but the future was really uncertain and none of that money was coming to me. You know, I was (laughs) maybe buying myself, expensing a lunch every once in a while. And, you know, the options for me as a computer science graduate, you know, undergrad from Carolina, were to go get a job at IBM and Microsoft, which paid a ton of money if you could get it. Um, and then a lot of other folks that I knew that were thinking about business in college went and took consulting jobs and were living in big cities, making a lot of money, probably below the poverty line because of the cost to live in those cities, but it was at least a lot of money and they were taking nice vacations and they were racking up hotel points, and here I am, like going to like quarter wing night at Jersey Mike's because that's all I can afford. Right. And there's this like moment of like, gosh, I thought I was smart and was going to try and be successful, but in this moment, like I'm, I'm now last place, and it's it's painful to to look ahead, and it's certainly. I think also fed that um, you know my ability to have a honest conversation with my peers. Like I didn't really want to let those people know that the path I was on was kind of miserable and I was really broke compared to them. And in that moment, they looked a lot smarter than me. <laughs>
1: yep. Yeah, it, it's. I think there's there's inherently a competitive nature in a lot of people that you know, that are going to start your own business. Um, you want to win. You want to you know, make your business succeed. And so you couple that with, you know, typically you surround your peer group, you surround yourself with, or you know, if you're a successful person, they're usually doing pretty well. So as you watch them kind of lack where you think you should be, I found myself getting more reserved in how much I would open up about yeah. how challenging things are. Because you want to keep it close to the chest. You don't, you don't want to let them know that, wow, I'm not doing anywhere close to what you're doing. and yeah. You no, know, it it's embarrassing to admit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The value of you know later in my career finding these places like entrepreneurs organization and you know, just other areas where entrepreneurs come together and talk about real things in their lives. I didn't discover till probably I don't know, five, six years into my business journey. And like that was a huge wake-up call for me to say, well, there's actually a safe place where I can go talk with other entrepreneurs about how good it is sometimes and also how bad it is sometimes. I think one of the my favorite descriptions from that group was you know, if you've just closed a huge client and made a hundred thousand dollars, sometimes you don't want to tell your friends that too, because you're going to get stuck with the drink tab for the next two <laughs> months. <laughs> so it's not yeah. always the bad things that we don't share with everybody else uh, in yeah, the folks 100%. around us. It's good to have that counsel. One of the things that, that I've learned and um, many of our members have learned on our journey is the importance of working to our strengths, right? Like um, no one person's perfectly suited to execute every one of the very large tasks associated with building a business. You talked about not having you know, background in consumer products and in beverages, even in, even in business, right? Um, so tell us a bit about what you've learned, particularly around the time you were starting to scale this business that might serve as good advice for um, those of us just kind of starting on the journey.
1: You know, the, one of the things, not to my own horn, but I do realize my, my, where I'm, what I'm not good at what I am good at.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I've been fortunate that the partnership I have with our, our PE group, they're very good at identifying what I'm good at and what I could use this help in, and so the uh, the challenge is always saying you know, maybe I'm not the best equipped to put these together or to put like this report together or prepare you know a presentation for a meeting with Publix or Kroger mm-hmm. need this stuff. I, I'm very good with them face to face and on the sales side and, and showing the passion about the brand we built. Um, so I think it was about 2015, we, the PE group brought in, uh, someone from they'd worked with before that whose set wasn't completely opposite of mine, but it meshed very well. It filled in some, some gaps that I had. And so the challenge at first is kind of accepting the fact that, Hey, this person's coming in to help you. They're not your enemy. Our, 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 our interests are aligned. Mm-hmm. And we all want to make this thing succeed. So don't be too proud to take take their help, mm-hmm. and so once that was kind of, and again as the founder of the business, you know this is my baby. I don't want to give anyone else any control that that it would be taken away from me. Um, but once kind of getting getting past that pridefulness, yeah, uh, the the person we brought in, Matt, we went from two hundred and fifty retail accounts to. Over the course of four years, we got into 6,000 new accounts. And we were at a certain point where every meeting we would go to with a Harris Teeter or a Publix or a Whole Foods, or we would do our presentation and we'd come out of the meeting and we'd get the business. Mm -hmm. And it, it it was great because we were able to play off each other's strengths. And again, it was realizing, you know, when we're in these meetings and I'm, rambling on about the mix and how great it is and they ask a question about all right well what how much can you allocate to the startup marketing budget when we put you in our stores mm-hmm. and I'm dumbfounded he's able to jump right in and and answer those questions immediately so those part the partnerships like that we were able to scale the business incredibly quickly um, you know we we were in a great space as far as being a craft premium brand when there weren't a lot out there and then being in the right place at the right time and it
2: just luck had a lot to do with it yeah
0: it's it's incredible your story's incredible ryan because there's two things that you've mentioned so far here that i think are the some of the scariest things that any entrepreneur could ever imagine starting out right like what if i lose my house Like, my life will be over. This will be devastating. And what if I, you know, become successful and have investors join me in this business and then they bring somebody, let's say force. I know you didn't say that word, but they bring in somebody to help with operations, to kind of be a partner of yours. Like, that's terrifying to most founders. Like, my investors are going to force things on me. I might lose my house. Like, that's the definition of failure to so many entrepreneurs. And here you are telling us that, and you've got this incredible brand that's leading your market. And that is also your path to getting there.
1: Yeah. It's tough, you know, for people that are like the PE, the private equity space is very tough, right? You're, you hit a point where, again, house is getting ready to go bye-bye. Um, I need money to keep this brand going. So you're pigeonholed where you're, you've got to get someone to back you. And I was fortunate that the partnership that, uh, you know, I've been with now for nine years has been very much about this brand. How do we make this brand successful? Our interests are aligned, but we also recognize that this business was built by this founder. So let's make sure we don't take away and force our will upon it. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, especially coming out of how the lows I was in. We, uh, I was in the private equity group's offices in Atlanta, and I had just gotten word back from Harris Teeter, which was our first major grocery chain that we had started in. And I'd formed a really good relationship with the buyer uh, over their mixer brands, mm-hmm. And we would, you know, go back and forth. And she finally emails me one day or calls me one day and she says, Hey, I'm going to put you in all of our stores, which for us was huge. We were only in their uh, you know, postal market. So I call her back and I'm like, Hey, I've looked at our distribution map. I can get into 85% of them with our current distributor relationships. She's like, well, it's either all or nothing. I can't do a, a hodgepodge, oh. So I wait to, I'm, I piece this whole thing together, get a new distributor in North Carolina that can do it for us. And, but over a two week period, I don't communicate with it because I'm so nervous about losing the deal. And so I happen to be in Atlanta and I'm with the our, our private equity group and we're talking about the Harris Cedar deal. And I'm like, you know, I just finally got it all pieced together. I need to let, let them know. And the private equity, uh, his face is like, well, does she know yet? Like, well, I haven't told her. And because like, call her right now on the on the conference call. So it's the speaker button. We call her up. Karen, I, I got the deal put together. We can be in all of your stores. Um, and she goes, Ryan, I haven't heard from you in two weeks. The deal's off. Oh, my God. And my face turned like the same color of the bricks behind you. And the private equity guy is giving me, as soon as we hang up, I'm throwing you off the roof of this building. She, it felt like she waited 10 minutes. It was maybe four seconds. And she goes, Ryan, I'm just effing with you. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was, that was probably like the, the first heart attack I had as a, a 30-year-old.
0: <laughs> brutal. Yeah. Absolutely it, it,
1: brutal. But it was one of those extreme highs, extreme lows. And so, you know, It was one of the the funnest experiences looking back that that was our first big kind of win, getting those So it was an interesting way to get it, though.
0: One of my good entrepreneur friends out here in Boulder, um, Bart Foster, says, um, you know, he said, when I started my first company, he was actually in Atlanta, so in the southeast as well. And he said, "Um, I started my first company. I knew that I was going to experience some high highs and some low lows. Um, What I didn't know was that they were going to happen in the same day and multiple (laughs) times a day often.
1: (laughs) Yes, 100%. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think that's a very accurate uh, analysis of what we experienced, that emotional roller coaster in entrepreneurship. So we talked a lot about the challenges. I love, I love that story as well. Um, now with this massively successful product on your belt, you've had some moments, I'm sure, where you're like, this is, this is real, like it's finally going the way I want it to go. Your idea has gone from your kitchen to thousands of stores and bars across the country. What are some of the best and happiest moments along the way, like the, the moments when you knew this was real and, and could just sit in it and be excited about it?
1: I think, you know, I can think specifically of two where it was the most rewarding. Um, The the first one we had, we had gotten, um, we'd entered the product into the Gardening Gun. Gardening Gun's a a really strong Southern brand at Magazine. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do a Made in the South Awards. They just started it. Um, So we had entered the product into their food category for best, uh, best new food product. And, you know, we're up against some, some, incredibly strong brands and Sean Brock, uh, who's a well known chef here, he started Husk and he was the judge of the food category. And you know, we didn't know it was right after we had launched the, the new product. So it really had no idea how it was gonna how it was going to do and enter it and we get a call back from them about a month later, hey you guys have done well, you may be featured in the magazine as a you know as a runner up. <laughs> about two weeks prior to the magazine coming out, they told us we had won the best overall food product in the South for the in South award. And that was just incredibly powerful. You know, this is a, a real magazine telling us that we had come up with a great product. Um, I think the second one is, it's probably the encompassing of you forget what you're putting out there is an actual real product. And there are people on the other end that are consuming it that are passionate about the brand. Um, so it's funny how he is on the call with us. And one of the coolest things, you know, you go to these food and wine fests and you've got people that come up to you and they they tell you how much they love your product and what big fans they are. You see them every year for four years mm-hmm. and they just love your product. And it's it literally, you, you, you take a step back and it's so rewarding to know that you came out with something great. People really, really do like it. And then you get to meet the, you know, formulate relationships with customers that you know, are real.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think for me, that's probably been the, the most rewarding part of the of what we've been able to accomplish so far.
0: Yeah. yeah. And for folks that don't know, the Charleston Food and Wine Festival is one of the coolest ways to experience new products. I, living in North Carolina the last 20 years had the opportunity to go down. Once or twice in uh, just an incredible event, an incredible food event in, uh, do you like spicy food or delicious food or <laughs> Southern culture at yeah. next level? So I want to talk about, um, you know, we talked about connection, you know, a, a minute ago and kind of like not feeling alone um, In at Founders First and as our, com- like in our community and the system itself or in our course, we're constantly talking about supporting each other understanding the challenges we all face. Um, we talk about entrepreneurship fact versus fiction a lot. What you know, people think that we should be experiencing, what we're actually experiencing um, the impression of like popular culture and what entrepreneurship is supposed to be. Um, you've worked incredibly hard to take this idea all the way through to an amazing product and company. Um, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are just getting started about how to focus on what matters the most?
1: I think that you know, the, the biggest thing that, I always look back to is and again, this is for for our space, and I think it translates is you know identify what may be a gap in in the market you're trying to to go into mm-hmm. uh, for us it it was there was really only one good competitor out there, um, so we knew there was a space or I knew there was a space for a premium brand mm-hmm. well made um, that's marketed well the second thing that that I look back to is it's got to be a great product. You know, it, it, there's only so much lipstick you can put on a pig. And I realized that very, very quickly with our first, um, with the first version of it, you
2: mm-hmm. know,
1: we getting it out into the marketplace, a lot of the bars and restaurants that were taking it, they were taking it because we branded it Charleston. Mm-hmm. I was a relatively good salesman. So I could get them to, you know, kind of like the Pepsi challenge. They would taste it and, Oh, just a little bit of it. Yeah, this is great, um, mm. but the product wasn't wasn't that good in, in comparison to other products out there. Um, so, holding your product until you think it is the it can go up against whatever competitor that's in your space, and you feel confident about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to to overstate the importance of being confident in your brand. Um, you know, nowadays when we. When we try to get restaurants, you know, big restaurant groups to pick us up, you know, one of the things we kind of shied away from the beginning and then we said, why don't we just go head to head with our competitors? So mm-hmm. one of the big things we'll, we'll do now is if we go into a, a restaurant and you know, some of them are, give us a little pushback, we, gra- we grab the bartending staff or the, the wait staff, we have, the, we have them pour samples of whatever they're currently pouring, and then we have them do a taste test against our stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's a chance that we're going to get shot down. Um, But more often than not, we win the taste test. And so the confidence in our brand and knowing that we have a great product, uh, I think that's one of the things that that has helped propel us forward is not shying, shying away from that and making it the best it can possibly be.
0: Yeah, I'd see in that there's incredible bravery in you, first of all, to be able to notice in the early days or just listen to people when they told you the product wasn't that great and to be able to iterate on it. I mean, it takes a great deal of humility to not want to just say kind of screw you to people that give you that feedback. <laughs> I, I,
1: said, screw, I said screw you a few times. I mean, it took a few <laughs> slaps in the face before, before I finally uh, sat back and realized it needed to be fixed.
0: Yeah, I love that. All right, let's go to questions from the audience. So, um, if you have a question that's been kind of brewing in your mind or something that popped up so far, drop it in the chat right now. We've got a little bit of time and uh, left to be able to take in some questions. So, first one's from Jessica, and it's kind of about this product quality side of it. Um, she said, Would love to hear advice for startups who are creating a new product to bring it to the market. You talked about your original mix needing to be redone. How can entrepreneurs stri- start strong with a product that exceeds expectations? I might add to that as well. Do you have to? <laughs> Should you? <laughs> Does it have to be right the first time?
1: So you're, it's very tough to not be right the first time. Um, when, we, when we tried to relaunch the brand after having already been in the market, if it hadn't been for the Garden and gun uh, Made in the South Award, I don't know that we could have successfully gotten it back out there. Um, wow. Because you know, it, you're know you going back to, you know, hey, Aaron, I know you've already been trying to sell our mix and it didn't go well. Give me another shot. But mm-hmm. I can go in there with the Garden & Gun magazine with a testimonial from Sean Brock saying, hey, this is the best mix he's ever tasted. You know, that, that for sure allowed us to, get, to have a second chance. Wow. Um, one of the ways we made sure we started strong with the, the rebrand is we took, For seven months, um, working in collaboration with uh, a good friend, Boris and Jackson, that are recipe guys, for seven months, we would craft a a version of the new recipe, and I would go to a Total Wine uh, right out here in West Ashley, and I would bring jugs of our mix, and I would buy a bottle of every competing brand of Bloody Mary mix on the shelf, and Total Wine was cool enough to allow me to do an in-house taste test. So sat there with a rudimentary you know, consumer satisfaction survey and eventually got to a point where we were winning 75% of the of taste the test. Okay. The Bloody Mary space to get 75% of people on the same page is, is very, very tough because everyone's palates are different. So we okay. said 75% was good enough for us. Um, yeah, yeah I mean, we, had, we had seven months of, in essence, R&D to make sure that we had it right. Because if you launch it once and it's not that great, you can come back to that. A second relaunch, not that great. I don't know that you survived that.
0: Yeah. Is there any way to quantify like money spent on retooling, coming back at it again? Like let's say you happen to have gotten it right the first time. How much, how many months, how many dollars would you have saved um, if if you had done it that way instead?
1: So the off? the the actual um, the formulation wasn't really the expensive part, it was the branding. Okay. So one of the the one of the pieces of advice I would give to someone looking to start their own business is, you know, the branding is incredibly important. Um, and even if you don't want to spend a fortune on it, I wouldn't recommend like going to a neighbor and having them hand draw something. Um, the investment in kind of your graphic design package and and marketing your brand and and branding your brand uh, is important. And so. For us, we partnered with this incredible firm here in Charleston that's got a, a, a national reputation, and it was expensive. I mean, we spent well into the six figures mm-hmm. on the rebrand, on the marketing campaign, uh, which we would have spent anyway if we had, had launched it the right way the first time. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I'm not advocating for anyone that's starting a small bi- starting a, a business to go out and make that kind of investment. But I do recognize looking back at our first version of everything, even if we had spent a 10th of that just to make sure we, we looked decent in the beginning, mm-hmm. it could have helped.
0: Do you think the, I mean, it's brand, it's a loaded question, but uh, is brand good enough to make up for a product that's 80% as good as it should be? Like, do those two things, can they work hand in hand that way? Or you got to nail them both?
1: A, a strong branding will get you so far. Yeah. Um, after that, you're just a good looking bottle that sits on the shelf. Yeah. yeah, You know, we, Got it. we always joke like, hey, we, our bottle and our ads can get someone to, to buy at least one bottle of the mix.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But once they crack that bottle open, if they're not repurchasing, you know, we've, we're fooling ourselves. Um, so, yeah, great branding, great marketing can overcome a lot of issues. But ultimately, if the product isn't, isn't good, um, or at least doesn't, the consumers don't like it, mm-hmm. um,
0: you're only going to get so far. I love that. That's an incredible insight. All right. Next question is from Dan. Um, he said you mentioned the addition of the colleague who really helped you scale. Um, I think you said something for like a couple hundred stores to 6,000 points of distribution. Were you able to be more open with him about the, the, like the challenges in, you know, like how tough it was on you as an entrepreneur to build a business or was this really kind of like a business partnership?
1: So it started very, very matter of fact, very business, um, but the great thing about having Matt in so closely with the operation is he got to see the challenges every day. Um, he knew the stresses that that we were under I was under um, trying to scale this thing and so as our as we built the business up you know, our relationship also became great, and so i could we we would talk literally seven times a day um, and it would start with business conversations and then it would go into. Hey, well, how are you doing? You know, what's going on down there in Charlotte? So it really, I think him being in the trenches um, with me was probably the best outlet that I had, far none, even amongst friends, you know, close friends, because Mm. I could be 100% honest with with everything.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible partnership. I've seen that go both ways in my own companies and in... um... And in you know friends' companies, where sometimes those relationships stay very strict. But you're right; there's this huge opportunity for somebody that knows so much about you because of the time you spend together, and, and your current mind state and your situation, as well as the business. Right? They can probably have a little bit of insight into you know I might know why Ryan's not feeling great today because <laughs> I saw the news yesterday, or I was I right. got the call too. Right?
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's nice to have someone you know. For all our successes that we had uh, as a team, the you know there were some some pretty big challenges and kicks in the nuts. Um, and so having somebody that, and I think this is true for, you know, relationships and marriages that having somebody that you can just take your guard down and man, that really sucks. Or that was, you know, that was really, really hard to put all this work into it. And we didn't get the deal we thought we were going to get, or, you know, we just got beat up pretty hard by the, 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 Private equity guys, and that was you know, that, that was just a, not a great meeting. I'm not feeling so hot after it. Um, that that made a huge difference. I think for me, like emotional toll wise, just having someone like him that's right there in it with you was great. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that that concept of it's okay to not be okay sometimes, and <laughs> that's, that's just
1: yeah, one hundred percent.
0: Yeah. I posted a little meme to the founders first community the other day that I found hilarious. It was one of those signs in front of restaurants that, you know, the owners probably change every week with something else funny, and it said, "It's okay to fall apart sometimes. Tacos <laughs> fall apart all the time, and everybody still loves them.".
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs>
0: Loved it. All right, next question's from Morali. Um, when you got your product into so many stores, so you talked about this big expansion, um, the question is you had to finance the inventory yourself, right? Retailers only pay for what you sell. How did you handle the finances and cash flow in an expansion like that? you've got to build products and then let it sit on shelves right well you're, you're still paying for it till it sells
1: so we uh, in the 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 way we're structured uh, that a lot of beverage brands are is uh, the distributor pays us for product once they pick it up mm-hmm. and then they build a retailer, but we've got to pay for production of the product prior to them picking up so there is you've got a, a six figure lag uh, and we again I'm not. We've been fortunate that our PE group that backs us really monitor had monitored that from the very beginning, and mm-hmm. so they made sure that, that we were liquid enough, that checks weren't getting bounced, that we could, you know, until a point we built up our cash reserves, that we could now everything's running smoothly. But in that situation, uh, the PE firm came in, and they they were the ones that were able to keep us moving forward.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, otherwise, with my math skills, it would be
0: it would be. Like <laughs> back to selling cars to try and uh, (laughs) cover the cash flow deficit
2: yeah exactly Uh,
0: which might have worked actually yeah (laughs) yeah i mean cash crunch is such a huge critical problem in so many businesses and even in high margin companies where like my background in software we're producing ones and zeros we still have a lot of rd cost on the front side but in physical product businesses like yours where you've got a buy the ingredients, they're fresh, they have to move quickly from a supply chain efficiently. You've got to make product, bottle it, and then get it picked up and shipped again. I mean, the complexity and the amount of cash you can have outlaid in order to grow, I think makes a lot of sense why, I'm sure you made that decision intentionally to bring in a capital partner like that, because I can't imagine how you do it otherwise. There's just, you know, you grow a lot slower, I guess. (laughs) You grow much slower.
1: There's there's a a lot of confidence that comes in being able to know that, hey, we, we struck a deal with Publix, um, tomorrow, and they put in an order for fifteen thousand cases of mix. We've got the capacity and the resources to fulfill that order. Yeah, um, you know, it's there. It, it takes a huge unknown off of the out of your mind and gives you a lot of confidence going to that meeting. Hey, let's shoot for the moon. Let's ask for four facings all over their stores. Let's see how mm-hmm. much we can get because we can fulfill it. Um, so that was, that was something that really, really helped going into these meetings and, and growing the business.
0: Yeah. Incredible position to be making decisions on top of incredible platform. All right. So Ian asked a question back to kind of personal, personal relationships and support again. So outside of people that you worked with, what, what is your kind of like social fabric as an entrepreneur? Are they that friends, family, like who are the other people you've turned to in, in your path when times haven't been great and you, you needed to pick up as an entrepreneur?
1: So I've I've got a really close group of friends that I've had since my college Charleston days that stayed pretty much consistent. Uh, Dan's brother, John is a close friend of mine. Um, So there's been a a very good core group. And a lot of these guys are entrepreneurs in themselves. They own their own real estate business. They own their own construction company. Um, So they've been a good steady source of letting my guard down and being able to bounce ideas off of them and and when things were, were rough, you know, they really were kind of the, the backbone to say, hey, you're going to get out of this. You're going to figure out what your way out of it. Worst case scenario, this whole thing goes belly up. You can live in my guest room. So that, that safety net was really great. Um, and it, it's something that I'm very, very cognizant of how fortunate it is to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I couldn't imagine as an entrepreneur if you always think about worst case scenario. If this whole thing goes belly up, I'm my house is foreclosed on. I have no money left. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have the safety net of knowing it all goes away tomorrow, and I could go move in with my parents, you know that there's something to be said about knowing that at the worst possible case scenario, you can't fail that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, and it just can't be overstated. That's why for people without that kind of safety net that are still able to do it, I mean I. The utmost respect for for what they've been through and and the challenges you're operating without a safety net. It's a tight wire act without a safety net.
0: You know, it's interesting because you're an entrepreneur. You've you know, when when you and I talked recently as well, the you know the stress of selling product from the back of the truck, working incredible hours, you know, doing all this heavy lifting yourself as you're starting, um, and you're also in an industry that's kind of food and beverage and you know product that pairs with alcohol. And I'm sure that leads to, obviously, lots of nights out selling product to two in the morning, right? And it's not, it's not like maybe selling software nine to five or even selling cars like before. This is an industry that's known to go really hard and have really hard hours. So you've been faced with challenges for keeping yourself balanced, keeping your mood up, keeping your energy up across this. What are just some tips that you could share with other entrepreneurs? How do you stay energized? How do you stay healthy in the midst of what this, this type of business even requires of an entrepreneur?
1: it's you know it's a really good point you make, as far as the, the the food and beverage industry is fraught with alcoholism uh you know depression, and so there's some groups in the, in this space uh, that have been formed they' kind of they recognize that and they take the stigma away from you know, that's always associated with any kind of addiction um, mm-hmm. so those are a really good outlet um, for me I've got a a, a lab that you know, I'll, I'll find myself on days where things are, are maybe going a little sideways. I usually a lot an hour a day at least. Throw in the headphones, put on whether it's Howard Stern or something to take my mind off. You know, some comedy and mm-hmm. it sounds simplistic, but it, for me it works. I do an hour long walk in Charleston the dog. Yeah, um, and just completely put my phone on do not disturb, so I'm not getting texts or phone calls and the uh, the the ability of you are to to unplug for an hour a day um, and you know, just kind of let it all go for a moment if you can for me has been something that that's been a great stress reliever um, I can't say that I had that kind of wherewithal five years ago uh, mm-hmm. you know I for sure was caught up in the food and bev you're drinking with all of your customers. Um, so looking back now, it was a, times were good, but it was also a dark place, um, you know, as far as consumption and kind of not recognizing my own, my own issues when I need to take a step back and, you know, the demons you're dealing with. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Ryan, thank you so
0: much for your time. This has been incredible and your, this story is just absolutely amazing. Um, we're all eager to see your continued success and I'm sure we've all got Bloody Marys on the brain. So uh, I saw a few people raising a glass along the way in the gallery view here. So cheers to everybody.
1: <laughs> if you need a Bloody Mary, I know a guy.
0: Yeah, exactly. Enjoy a Charleston Bloody Mary. Um, Aaron, I
1: appreciate it. It was a blast and the, you know, really great talking to you and look forward to catching up soon.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for being here and thanks for your candor. We're just happy to see you uh, have, have you in our community and look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, Ryan.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us at Founders First. This conversation continues in the Founders First community. Search Founders First community in the App Store on your phone to learn how to prioritize your health and wellness to become more successful. Get your questions answered by top entrepreneurs and receive notifications about upcoming shows. Until next time, stay healthy, be at your best, go change the world.